try and you will only come to this conclusion love and marriage love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage dad was told by mother you can't have one you can't have none you can't have one without the other I want to uh, welcome you here. If we haven't had a chance uh, to meet, my name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And if you are a young person in grade 6 to grade 12, um, Mike will take uh, over and you can head downstairs with the gang to the source. It's a midweek source, a mid-month source rather, which is a little bit uh, unusual for us. Usually our programming runs on the first and last weekends of the month for young people. Uh, but I don't know, maybe Mike's got a playoff fever or something. He's a big Canucks fan for those of you that know him. Well, as we listen to that uh, song to introduce our teaching time together this morning, if you were of a certain generation, you probably thought of the song's author, that being uh, good old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra. Now, if you're familiar with uh, Sinatra's story a little bit and his relationships. There's a little bit of, okay, there's a lot of incongruity between uh, the words of that song and Sinatra's life. Uh, as several extramarital affairs, four wives throughout his tumultuous and very, very public uh, relationship lifetime. But if you grew up in another era, you probably didn't even know maybe that Frank Sinatra sang that song. The first person you thought of when you heard that song was probably Another maybe not so great role model for us, and that is Al Bundy, right, from the series Married with Children, uh, played by actor Ed O'Neill. And, uh, and uh, Bundy was a hapless shoe salesman. Does anybody remember the name of the store that he sold shoes at? No, you don't remember? Okay. It was called Gary's Shoes and Accessories for Today's Woman. Kind of a weird name for a store, but um, he... Mistakenly, his backstory is he mistakenly married his wife Penny because he was drunk. He proposed to her, and he was drunk because he uh, played college football and he broke his leg and it ended his college football career, what he thought was going to be a promising. And so he got drunk, and then on that night he proposed to his wife. And so he's stuck with her, and they ended up having two kids. And so in his in his mind, this has just ruined his life and his career. Now, I bring these two guys up to just simply point out to us that uh, there are a lot of marriage archetypes out there for relationships in our society. And some of them are great, and some of them are maybe not that great as examples or templates or role models. And so as Pastor Keith and I were uh, brainstorming a little bit about doing a series on marriage, we were wondering what to call it. And we were looking at some different cultural expressions and ideas about marriage, and we were contrasting that with when he and I uh, do wedding ceremonies, which we're often invited and asked to do, uh, what is it that we say in the actual marriage ceremony versus maybe some of the other cultural patterns that are out there? And what struck us deeply was that older phrase that you don't often hear much anymore, and that is the phrase, holy matrimony. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Join in holy matrimony, this man and this woman. Now, it's an older phrase, but it conveys the idea, of course, that when we're talking about relationships, we're talking about marriage, that it's God's invention. And Tim Keller, in his wonderful book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, Facing the Complexities of Life with the Wisdom of God's, uh, Wisdom of God, reminds us that what God has instituted, he also regulates. And therefore, if God invented marriage, those who enter into it should make every effort to understand and submit to his purposes for it. And we do this in many other aspects of our lives. If you're going out uh, to buy a car or a vehicle, which is far beyond the level of complexity that you could probably put together on your own, then it comes with an owner's manual. And the designer has an idea in mind. 
And the designer has an idea as to how to maintain and keep that car up with treatment and maintenance. And so if you totally ignore that, then you're courting disaster with a vehicle purchase. And so our plan here as we go into a series on marriage and relationships is to explore what is it that God says to us about the nature of relationships and about the nature of marriage. And so we're going to cover a broad range of topics in this series. We're going to talk about the purpose and vision that God has outlined for marriage, and we'll look at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. We'll talk about what does it look like uh, to participate in teamwork in a marriage relationship. We're going to talk from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about singleness and how the Bible lifts up and elevates uh, singleness as a way of life that should not be disdained. We're going to talk about, in the language of Ephesians chapter 5, what does it look like in a relationship? Mutual submission is a term that comes up in Hebrews uh, and in um, Ephesians chapter 5. And so we're going to probe into that a little bit. We'll talk about some basic needs that each of us have as men and women in relationship and about love and respect. And then we'll also talk about sex and sexuality. And so these will kind of the, be the framework that we go through as we explore the different topics uh, through the course of our time together. And we don't often do this, but I'm going to put two disclaimers on the teaching series as we get into it uh, this morning. Number one disclaimer is that if you are a part of our community here and you're a single adult, you might rightly ask yourself, why in the world should I bother coming for the next six Sundays and listen to teaching on something that doesn't apply to me? That's fair. Uh, but what I would say to you is, uh, just in response to that, is that I think both married and single people need a realistic vision of what marriage is and can be. Because most of the things that you hear about marriage as a married or as a single person tend to be uh, a little bit, I don't know, they tend to be a little bit simplistic in a lot of ways. If you browse the bookshelves at local stores and you look, it's three problems, to, three quick ways to solve this problem or that problem. Um, but this series really isn't about those things. It's about building a solid architecture for relationships and for marriage that's centered on God's word. And the idea is that this will help both single adults and married people correct any mistaken views that we have about marriage and hopefully will help as a single adult, if that's you, help you think critically and carefully about who you might consider as a prospective mate should your life move in that direction. So the second disclaimer that we'll talk about or put on this uh, teaching is for those who've been in marriage relationships that have ended through separation, through loss, or for, uh, through divorce. And as we talk about these things, I want you to hear our heart, and I want you to hear and understand some of the things that God's Word talks about in terms of relationships as a whole, and not just think about it through the experiences uh, that you've been through, either recently or if there's some distance or time between uh, your experiences and where we're at now. I think we have a lot to learn from you as a community and for those who are married, and so we want to be open to hearing that voice, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on in our morning this morning. Well, the root of our conversation in these topics uh, will be in Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, though I don't normally do this, I'm going to read the whole context of Ephesians chapter 5 for you, um, because the whole context of the teaching, specific teaching that appears on marriage, is important to understand the specifics. And as I read, uh, the first couple of verses are going to come up on the screen, and then not again until the very end. So if you have uh, the YouVersion app on your smartphone, you may want to pull that out, and you may want to grab your Bible and uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5, and you can follow along. I'll be reading from the message translation uh, this morning, and I want you to listen as I read and think about the biblical framework for marriage that comes up in this text and contrast that with Sinatra and Al Bundy's perspective, all right? So let's get into Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 1. As we look into God's word, let me pray with you this morning. God, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that uh, it is truth and authority, authoritative in our lives. 
We pray now that you would speak to us by your word. Wherever we're at on our relationship journey and spectrum, uh, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear from you and that by your spirit you would speak uniquely and powerfully to each one of us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 1 begins in this way. Watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Because mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn his way of love, a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but was extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but he loved in order to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Don't allow love to turn into lust, setting off a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity, filthy practices, or bullying greed. Though some tongues just love the taste of gossip, Christians have better uses for language than that. Don't talk dirty or silly. That kind of talk just doesn't fit our style. Thanksgiving is our dialect or native language. You can be sure that using people or using religion or things just for what you can get out of them, these are the usual variations on idolatry, will get you nowhere. And certainly nowhere near the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. So don't let yourselves get taken in by religious smooth talk. God gets furious with people who are full of religious sales talk but want nothing to do with him. Don't even hang around people like that. You were groping your way through the murk once, but no longer. You're out in the open now. The bright light of Christ makes your way very plain. So no more stumbling around. Get on with it. The good, the right, The true, these are the actions that are appropriate for daylight hours. So figure out what will please Christ and then do it. Don't waste your time on useless work, mere busy work, the barren pursuits of darkness. Expose these things for the sham that they are. It's a scandal when people waste their lives on things they must do in the darkness where no one will see. Rip off the cover off those frauds and see how attractive they look when they're exposed to the light of Christ. As it says, wake up from your sleep, sleep, climb out of your coffins, Christ will show you the light. So watch your step and use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Don't think carelessly or unthinkingly. Make sure that you understand what it is that the master wants. Don't drink too much wine that cheapens your life. Drink the Spirit of God, huge drafts of Him. Sing hymns instead of drinking songs. Sing songs from your heart to Christ. Sing praises over everything. Any excuse for a song to God the Father in the name of our Master, Jesus Christ. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Verse 22. Wives, understand and support your husband in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife in the way that Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church. It's a love marked by giving, not by getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything that he does and says is designed to bring out the best out of her. Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness, and that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No one feeds, no, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are a part of his body. And this is why the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, 
they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery. And I don't pretend to understand it all. What's clearest to me is the way that Christ treats the church. And this provides a picture of how each husband ought to treat his wife, loving her himself in loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. I love the way that Paul begins and finishes his thoughts on marriage. He begins it by saying, you know what? Any conversation we have about relationships, we have to talk about our vertical relationship with God first. Be filled with the Spirit. Verse 21 is where this whole section begins. And if you don't start there and jump right into a conversation on marriage, you miss the context of what he's talking about. And I love the way that he finishes it. He finishes it by saying, marriage? Yeah, I just wrote a whole text on that, but it's a mystery. I don't pretend to understand it all. And sometimes, in many ways, we feel that way, don't we? But what is clear in the teaching in Ephesians chapter 5 is that marriage actually does have a template or a model for us that may not be what we think. You see, our culture has given us a unique and particularized model or a way or an architecture that we understand marriage relationships through. And a lot of it, um, it sells a lot of romantic comedies and self-help marriage books and lots and lots of Valentine's Day chocolates. Uh, Some scholars and historians even argue, well, marriage, you know, that's sort of a cultural uh, design that grew up in the late Bronze Age as a way of preserving property rights. But the scriptures give us a very, very different picture. And that is that marriage is God's idea and his intention and his invention. Therefore, its design is critical for us to understand. So I want to put up a a bit of a a compare and contrast piece here. And we're going to look at our culture's vision for marriage. And I'm going to look at what the text of Ephesians 5 holds out for us as a biblical vision of marriage, which we're calling holy matrimony. So look with me at this chart for a minute, all right? So we have the cultural vision of marriage uh, down that uh, one column and uh, biblical vision of marriage down the other. And the foundation for our cultural vision of marriage is the idea of personal fulfillment, by and large. Talk to people who are thinking about getting married, and you say, well, why are you getting married? Oh, she completes me. Or he completes me. It's an interesting thought process. And we'll deal with that in a few weeks uh, now as we talk about what marriage looks like. But the biblical foundation of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 is a life that is filled with sacrificial love. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 talk about learning to love like God loved us, with an incredible dynamic of sacrificing and giving of himself, not concerned how it would fulfill him in any way. The foundation of a biblical vision of marriage is learning to love and learning to live a life filled with sacrificial love for another person. The aspirations in our marriage Uh, in our culture rather, relational stability, financial security, and having and raising children are the rationale or the aspirational conversations that people tend to think about when they get involved in marriage relationships. Now, we're not saying that any of those things are inappropriate or wrong in any way. The aspirations of Ephesians chapter 5 say that if you're going to engage in a marriage relationship, the things to think about are whatever is good, right, pure, and true are the things to aspire toward in your relationship and in your marriage. Controlling influences in our culture. What has my marriage done for me lately? My personal needs, my personal wants, my personal desires. If those things are continuing to be met in significant ways, then the marriage contract still has an efficacy in my life. If I don't, then it's over and done. But the controlling influence in a marriage that is under God's authority and entered into in holy matrimony says, 
in Ephesians 5.21, be filled with the Spirit. And then one of the direct results of that is understanding that as I am filled with the Spirit, as I learn to be filled with the Spirit, that will overflow into every dynamic of my life, including my relationship. Paul goes on to talk about in Ephesians 6, parenting, the relationship a person would have with government and the state and others. And it's all under the heading of being filled with the Spirit. And so the controlling influence in the Christian marriage is a submission to God's heart and his intention and design and plan. The primary metaphor for our relationships in, in our cultural vision uh, is probably 19th century romanticism. been a lot of people that have written a lot about where we get our current notions of what romantic love and personal fulfillment in marriage looks like. And it doesn't actually go back all that far, only about a century and a half or so. But the biblical vision, we're going to look more detailed at this in a minute, is that the template that's set out for us as the primary metaphor to understand what's going on in a marriage relationship is the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ's love for and his relationship with the church. This stretches all the way back into the Old Testament where in uh, places like Ezekiel, God says and uses a marriage relationship or a marriage metaphor to describe his relationship with his people. And then the ultimate purpose then, which we'll talk about in a minute, of marriage. In our culture, probably we could say that the ultimate purpose of marriage is our own individual happiness. But under the biblical vision for marriage, I'm going to suggest today from Ephesians chapter 5, that God is interested in something more significant and more lasting than your personal happiness. And that is our holiness. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, we get a picture of God's ultimate design for marriage. And the thing that we begin to learn about marriage is that contrary to our cultural archetype, marriage in God's idea and in his estimation is a spiritual journey not a romantic journey. Now, again, that doesn't mean that marriage relationships shouldn't be uh, built in some ways around romance as a part of it. It doesn't mean that if you have somehow an unromantic relationship due to the passing of time in your marriage, that somehow that's more spiritual or less spiritual. It just means that if you build the full foundation of your marriage on a feeling of romantic love, that there's something deeper that God has in mind for your relationship. Because the template that is suggested here for us in Ephesians chapter 5 is Christ's relationship with, but more specifically, Christ's goals for the church, which is called his bride. So what are Christ's goals for the church, and therefore, what are the things that ought to be happening in our marriage relationship? Ephesians chapter 5 says that sanctification is one of the goals or the things that is happening in our marriage relationships. Getting rid of spots and wrinkles, all of those character elements and those parts of our lives that our, uh, God wants to reshape in us. And Tim Keller, I think, uses a helpful analogy in his book uh, to talk about what marriage looks like in this regard to sanctification. He says, imagine this. Think of an old bridge that uh, crosses a stream. And this old bridge actually has some structural defects in it that are hard to see. There may be hairline fractures in this old bridge that are difficult for you to perceive, but if you looked, a careful inspection would probably reveal them. But to the naked eye, there's nothing wrong with this old bridge that crosses the stream. But then, you take a 10-ton Mack truck and you drive it across this old bridge, and suddenly, the weight and the pressure 
of the truck begins to open up those hairline fractures so that they can be seen. The structural defects that indeed were actually always there will be exposed for all to see because the weight that the truck puts on the bridge. Now, the question is, uh, the truck didn't create those structural defects by driving over it. The truck simply exposed what was already present there. And when you get married, your spouse, if you'll pardon the metaphor, is like a 10-ton Mack truck driving right through the center of your heart. Marriage exposes things in your life that you may not have even been aware were there. It exposes what's going on in your inner world. If we were to be really frank, we have to say marriage brings out the worst in you. It doesn't create the weaknesses, but it has a tendency to reveal them if they're there. We step back for a minute and think about what is God's purpose and design for us as individuals. God wants us to be holy. He wants to transform our lives and our character to be more and more and more a reflection of and an image bearer of his son, Jesus Christ. And God uses relationships to change us into the people that he wants us to be. And so it's only natural that God would use our closest relationships in life for his ultimate purposes of sanctifying us. But Ephesians 5 doesn't stop there. In verse 26, it also says God's purpose for your life is not only a process of sanctification, of coming to rid yourself through the power and help of the Holy Spirit and some people who are pretty close to you through some of those spots and wrinkles in your life, but there's also a cleansing that God desires to have happen in your life. There's things in each of our lives that we need to get rid of. There's things that we need to move towards purity in. And I didn't know when I got married, as an example, how selfish I really was. Until you start living with someone and you begin to see a bit of a closer mirror of your own heart and your own character, and you begin to realize, I I carry a lot of junk with me from my past. I didn't even know until I came into close proximity relationally with somebody. Because then you can't hide the stuff anymore until the cleansing work then of God can begin in our hearts and our lives. Ephesians 5 says God's ultimate plan and his purpose and his overarching vision for his relationship with his body, the church, is for sanctification and for cleansing to happen. And that's a template for what he wants to see happen in our marriage relationships and relationships with other human beings as well. So the sanctification, a cleansing, the third thing that the text mentions is a holiness in verse uh, 27. The reshaping or reforming and retemplating of our character. Because God's ultimate design and desire for you is not an emotional feeling of happiness. That's why he anchored marriage in a much deeper place than that. In his book uh, called The Sacred Marriage, which I highly recommend, Gary Thomas uses uh, and muses on what if, as a result of a sanctifying, cleansing, and holiness desire that God has for us, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? It isn't that happiness isn't part of the package. It's just that happiness is hard to experience all of the time. And so we have to ask questions. What is marriage's ultimate purpose in our lives? And Thomas says, if we find that the same kinds of challenges face every marriage we might assume that God designed a purpose in this challenge that transcends something as illusory as as happiness. What if God designed your marriage to make us holy more than just to make us happy? If marriage becomes 
about things like my sanctification, my cleansing, and my holiness, which are all fancy, highfalutin kind of theological words to describe a reshaping that's happening in my interior and exterior world. What are the implications of that? If God designed marriage to make me holy more than to make me happy, how does that play itself out in your life and mine? Well, I think there's many possible implications, so let's work out a few of them. Firstly, for those who are married. I want to ask you a question if you're in a situation where you're married, either for a short period of time or long period of time, and that is this. How would your marriage change this week if you adopted a different frame of reference, if you actually believed that your spouse was a primary conduit or vessel that God was using to help shape your character? How would your marriage change this week if you believed that your spouse was a primary vehicle that God was using to help shape your character? You see, I don't know about you, but I find that in uh, our marriage, the smallest and often the strangest things can cause irritation and annoyance. When Meg and I were dating 14 years ago, I thought that all of the ways in which we were different were wonderfully cute and interesting. And then we got married. And all of the ways that we were different weren't quite so cute anymore. They were annoying because the Mack truck had driven over the bridge and some of my structural defects were being revealed. I can remember the first time that Meg made a comment about my habit, or lack thereof, of not wiping the kitchen counters. And I remember thinking, but I never wiped the counter. You know this. We've been dating for several years. Have you ever seen me wipe a counter in your life and in our relationship? I leave the bathroom counter a mess. I leave the kitchen counter a mess. I'm not super fond of dishcloths. And so, I, you know, it's not a big deal for me to leave the counter a mess. I'll put everything back in the fridge. Sure, I'll clean up the stovetop, whatever. But, you know, it's the counter, whatever. I mean, how many germs could live on it? thinks the bachelor's mind, right? right? Yeah. So, I mean, when you live alone, you can be as fine as you want with these kinds of things. But suddenly when we got married, this became an issue. And this issue, you know, it seems like so small and insignificant, but it became a real test of character. How was I going to respond to a simple question? Would you like to wipe the counter after you're finished with that? These moments in our marriage relationship develop and test your character. And I think there's nothing that's grown me as a person more than marriage because it's such a close relationship. You have to learn skills that you didn't have to practice before of communication. You have to make adjustments in deference to your own personal opinions and wants and schedules. You have to set aside personal preferences and work through little and big issues. But the challenge is, if we build our marriage relationship on the cultural framework, the minute that little or big things enter into that picture and the relationship stops working for me, or the minute that Meg pushes too hard into an area of my character that needs to be shaped so that I could become the person God wants me to be, then if we build it on a cultural framework, it's game over. You don't get the authority to tell me how to behave and live my life. We need something more lasting as a framework than just our personal happiness. I'm still not convinced 100% that God wants me to wipe the counters, but I am convinced that my wife would like me to wipe the counters and that it's actually a very small an easy demonstration of our relationship. And I am convinced that my wife is the primary tool in God's hands to shape me into the person that God wants me to be. And so if I actually believe that and live that out, the counterwiping conversation, I remind myself it's not actually about the counters. It's about how I have a propensity to be selfish and lazy 
And God wants to assist me in getting rid of those things in my life. Whether the counters get wiped or not may not be a big thing for you in your life. So let's go there uh, for a minute. There may be some much more significant and more challenging and troubling issues in your world and in your relationship. And maybe you're here today and maybe you're in a place of real trouble in your marriage and you're not sure how or whether it's going to survive. And when we get into those places, even the smallest conversation then begins to bring up significant amounts of anger and hurt and bitterness. And we often, if we're in a place of hurt, have forgotten about all of those things that attracted us to that person in the first place. And we wonder sometimes what it might be like to be rid of them altogether, to find someone who's more like us, who gets us, who doesn't want to change all of those things about us. And when we begin to move in that direction, it's a very dangerous place to be, friends, because you begin to fantasize about escaping from that relationship and finding the perfect person somewhere else. But the sad reality is, and it's tempting to think that we might need a new marriage, but if you're in a place of challenge and trouble, maybe this morning I'd like to suggest to you, though it's tempting to think of a new marriage, maybe what you might need is a change in perspective on your existing relationship. Now, there are obvious exceptions to this. And so if you're in a place of significant challenge, and if you're suffering physical abuse or marital infidelity, you need to come and talk to us as part of your pastoral team. And we'll work with you, holding those, confidence, uh, holding those conversations in confidence and walking with you towards health. But so many times, people that are at beginning stages of trouble in their relationships begin to walk down and let their minds go to these places of wanting to find someone who gets them more significantly instead of wanting to do the hard work of continuing in the relationship and getting a new perspective on it. For many marriages who are just starting down this road into trouble, remember, you've got fractures in your bridge too. And so to pretend otherwise is disingenuine. And to pretend that you can find somebody with no other fractures in their bridge that aren't going to annoy and give you a challenge is not very realistic. And so what I implore you to explore is that if marriage is about discipleship and character development and not just about an emotional state of happiness perhaps consider sticking it out and looking for new places in your existing relationship. Get honest, go for counseling, talk to people that you know and trust, but by all means, don't jump ship for greener pastures if the marriage is in a place where you need to work on it. Well, I said at the beginning of our conversation together this morning that there would be content uh, for those who are non-married or unmarried as well during that series. And I think that Ephesians 5 speaks to this as well. And for the single adult, I think one of the things that Ephesians 5 reveals to us in this conversation about relationships is that character matters. Because God's ultimate design for each of us, married or single, is holiness. And so living our lives under that design that God has for holiness, for purity, and for cleansing. Though these are things that certainly marriage does and assists in our lives, marriage does not exclusively do these things in our lives. And so there are other ways and other relationships, spiritual friendships that God brings into your life to develop and shapen your character. That's why being a part of a life group in this setting, or having close friends around you that will have the authority to speak into your life is a powerful thing. Or allowing God to shape your heart through the classic spiritual disciplines. So an example that you might want to pursue, or a takeaway you might want to pursue from this morning is, take a friend to lunch that knows you well this week and ask them a courageous question. Ask them, are there aspects of my character that you think I need to work on? Are there aspects of my life that you think I could be growing in, in holiness, 
in purity and in developing into the person that God wants me to be. You may not like their answer. You may tend to disagree with it, but God tends to work through community. And so if that person really loves God and they really love you, listen to what it is that they have to say because they might just be a part of that process of allowing God to shape your character in a profound way and then be an instrument of God's grace in helping you develop and grow. I think the other thing that needs to be addressed is the question of those who have experienced the pain of separation, divorce, the loss of their spouse. And sometimes in a context of a faith community, this process can make an individual in those circumstances or who has experienced those circumstances feel like they're damaged goods or second-class citizens. Sometimes it can make you feel like everybody's watching you and wondering all the time, well, I wonder what part they had in this process to make that marriage fail. Sometimes people who were friends with you don't know what to do or what to say, particularly if they were couple friends with you. But I want to say a couple things to you if you're in that situation in this place this morning. Number one, I want you to hear that this is a place for you. You see a lot of married people running around, and that's fine, but we love you. We want to get to know you, and we want to listen to the things that God has taught you in your life and in your experience and hear from you. And so don't push yourself away or let other people's attitudes or thoughts or behaviors push you away. Become a part of this community and help us learn together and grow and teach us what God's teaching you. That's not in Ephesians 5. That's just on my heart to say as a part of the pastoral and leadership team here. Uh, But there is an application, I think, that comes out of Ephesians chapter 5. And that is that ultimately, if God's highest purpose for your life is your growth and sanctification, cleansing and holiness, and your spouse is no longer in the picture, that does not mean that God is no longer in the picture. And that God is not still actively about the business of seeing those things come to fruition in your life. If you're in a place today where you've experienced those things and you're hurting, God's ultimate purpose for your life has not been thwarted because you've been in a painful relationship. He can and he still will do the work in your life of healing and restoration. God's will and his plan for you have not been destroyed by the actions of another person. You can and you still will become the person that God wants you to be. So keep on pursuing holiness and purity. Devote yourself to learning about God, meeting him in his word, serving him, and inviting others into your life. Don't shut down. Don't say to yourself, um, well, nobody in this community understands me because of my hurt or because of my past, because of my pain. Lean in to what it is that God has to teach us all. So you round out our our opening uh, week in Ephesians chapter 5. I want to ask you a simple but maybe profound question for those who are married, and that is, why in the world did you get married in the first place? I mean, I know you love the person and everything, and, you know, there were all kinds of great reasons, I'm sure, at the time, but why really did you get married? One of the great spiritual writers of the 17th century, Francis de Sales, was asked by a young woman in correspondence, should I stay single or should I get married? Her father was old and was dying, and so she thought it might be wise to commit herself and more spiritual to commit herself to a life of celibacy and uh, living and supporting her father in this way, or should I get married? And de Sales wrote back to the young woman saying that perhaps marriage in her situation might be the most difficult ministry that she could undertake. He reminded her of this, that the state of marriage is one that requires more virtue and constancy than any other. Marriage is an exercise in perpetual mortification, which means putting to death your own needs in 17th century language. 
from the thyme plant, in spite of the bitter nature of its juice, you may be able to draw and make the honey of a holy life. In order to spiritually benefit from marriage, we have to be honest. It's hard work. We have to look at our disappointments, our ugly attitudes, and confront our selfishness. We have to rid ourselves of the notion that somehow difficulties in marriage can be overcome if we simply pray a prayer and learn a few more cute principles. Because there's a deeper question that needs to be addressed beyond our happiness. What if God didn't design our marriage to be easier? What if God had an end in mind that went beyond our happiness, our comfort, and our desire to be infatuated? What if God, in his wisdom, designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for the work of your spirit in our lives and your desire and intent to transform us into the people that you want us to be. We do not pretend and we are not under any illusion that simply by working harder or trying to be a nicer person that we can get there. We acknowledge our full dependence on you and on your spirit's work in our hearts and lives. We acknowledge that without you, we are lost, we're broken, and we can't find our own way. And so, Jesus, I pray for every person in this place today that has not come into that life-changing relationship with you. God, I pray that today would be that day. Today would be the day of them confessing you as Lord and saying, God, I need you to fill me with your spirit. I repent, I turn away from trying to do life on my own and I embrace a new life that you give me. I'm going to come into that union with you and invite you into those deepest places in my life. If that's you here today, I want you to come and talk to me or Pastor Keith before you leave. We'd love to pray with you and give you some more information on how you can begin that journey with God. I also want to pray for those who are at places of struggle and trouble in their relationships. God, would you speak to each relationship by your spirit this morning? Speak to us about those places that you want to change in our lives and in our hearts. Bring your healing and redemption into those places. Father, we pray uh, for your protection over marriages in this community and in our church. We pray, God, that you would continue to develop and deepen a self-giving love in each of our hearts that relates and transforms every relationship that we have, not just for those who are married, but for us in our parental relationships, in our relationships with our neighbors and friends and in every category and place we find ourselves in, Jesus. Give us more of your heart that we would pour out that into the lives of our community this day and this week. So in the name of Jesus, we pray all of these things under your authority and power. And we say amen. We're going to move into a time of communion response. And so the team's going to come and lead us in worship, in song. And we will be uh, serving communion up and down the rows together today. And so the ushering team will come and prepare to do that. And so let me give you a few instructions because that's not maybe our normative practice here. Uh, first of all, this is open to anybody who is uh, a part of God's family. And so if you don't call Jericho Ridge your home church, but you've come into that life-giving relationship with Jesus, then you're welcome to participate here this is open for you. Um, you uh, will pass the elements up and down the rows. And if you have a wheat allergy, the rice crackers are available at the sides. And so please feel free to make your way there at any time to partake. Uh, if you're married, I'd invite you to take this opportunity 
to partake in communion with your spouse. And maybe serve each other and look your spouse in the eye and say to them, I appreciate how being married to you is shaping me. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Because we're reminded in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 again of how our marriage and our relationship with God go hand in hand. Peter says, in the same way husbands give honor to your wives, treat your wives with understanding as you live together, treat her as you should so that your prayers will not be hindered. If there's anything that's coming between you as a couple, take time to begin that conversation now and carry it on throughout the course of this week so that your horizontal relationship does not interfere with your vertical relationship with God. If you're unmarried or if you're by yourself, the very next verse in 1 Peter chapter 3 says, be tenderhearted and have a humble attitude. And so maybe ask God to take this time to continue to shape in your life and in your heart a spirit of humility and openness to what he has for you and any aspects of your character that need to be shaped today. And for all of us, God's ultimate invitation and desire is for us to be holy, to be shaped into the image of his son whom he loves. But we don't get there by our own merits or efforts. And that's why communion is such an appropriate reminder for us of how God does this work in our hearts and our lives. We don't get there in any other way except by what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so as you take this bread, it reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us. It represents his body. And as you take this cup, it symbolizes his blood, which was shed for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. And the scripture says, as often as we eat this bread, as often as we drink this cup, we proclaim or declare or announce what is going on. And we declare the Lord's death until he comes. We declare that God, who began a good work in you, and is continuing that process through the relationships that he has you in, will be faithful to complete it. So you can remain seated as the team leads us in response, in worship, and when you're ready, you can take the communion elements together.